Welcome back, everyone, to Inflammatory Content with your host, Kellen Cavanero. I've been working on my radio voice. I think I need some more work still. Before we get into today's paper, I want to take a second to talk about spreading science. This is one of the main reasons why I've started this podcast. And since starting, I've thought a lot about spreading science and why it's important. It is pretty clear that there is a large portion of the general public that is an outright distrust in science. We have people who don't believe in vaccination, people who don't support GMOs, and climate change deniers, just to name a few. As a scientist, it's very easy to just write these people off as ignorant and go on with business as usual. But I think it's time we take some responsibility and do something about it. We need to become more trustworthy to the general public. How do we do this? I think a good first step is transparency and communication. We need to share our work. The way that science is set up now is that the public pays for the research and then journals hide it behind paywalls. So it's no wonder that there's people who don't trust science. I want to help bridge that gap and increase that trust by communicating the things that I've learned in an accessible format. This is my call to action. Stop sciencing in silence. Okay, I'm done preaching now. I don't know about you all, but I am pretty excited about today's episode. Today, we will be talking about allergic airway disease and group 2 innate lymphoid cells. So I spent the last four and a half-ish years studying these cells with Dr. Taylor Doherty, who was one of the first to describe this cell type back in 2010-ish. If there's one topic I can say that I am an expert on, it's this. These cells have become near and dear to my heart over the years, so I am excited to, to share what I know about these cells with you all. Just a heads up. This episode's going to be more on the immunology side, less so on the microbiology side, but there is some overlap. We'll be talking about asthma, and microbes do play a role in asthma. There have been many studies showing that a dysbiosis of the microbiome is linked to asthma, and further, bacterial and viral infections are asthma triggers. Anyway... The title of today's paper is Neutrophils Restrain Allergic Airway Inflammation by Limiting ILC2 Function and Monocyte Dendritic Cell Antigen Presentation. This was published in a science journal, Science Immunology, November of 2019 by D. Ren Patel and colleagues out of the Imperial College London in the UK. Before we dig into the manuscript, I'll give you a quick summary of the paper and basically spoil the rest of the podcast, so here goes. These authors made a pretty surprising finding. Neutrophils, which are normally thought to be bad guys in asthma, actually do good. They actually inhibit allergic airway disease pathogenesis. They do this by keeping the levels of GCSF down, which the authors discovered two novel roles for. First, GCSF is able to directly potentiate ILC2 activation. And second, it's able to cause monocyte progenitors in the bone marrow to egress into the blood and tissues, ultimately leading to more antigen presentation. Okay, background information time. Allergic airway disease. What is that? 
When we say allergic airway disease, we mostly are referring to asthma. The reason why we use the former term is because mice don't get asthma per se. For example, they don't wheeze like humans do. So we use the term allergic airway inflammation, but it's an asthma-like phenotype. Asthma is a highly prevalent disease. It affects around 10% of people. So in the United States, that's around 30 million people. Asthma is a complex disease, the cause of which is likely a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Like most complex diseases, there are several subtypes of asthma. The most common type is mild-moderate asthma, which is characterized by eosinophilic airway inflammation. These are pro-inflammatory effector cells that can do some tissue damage. Another characteristic of asthma is airway remodeling. Now, contrary to what any of you interior designers out there might think, remodeling in the lung is not a good thing. This blanket term refers to structural changes, so increased mucus, increased fibrosis, smooth muscle cell hypertrophy, and hyperplasia. These structural changes increase the resistance in the airways, making it harder to breathe. And we can quantify this through airway hyperresponsiveness testing. Another subtype of asthma is severe asthma. It affects around 5 to 10% of asthmatics. 50% of healthcare costs for asthma go towards severe asthma. Severe asthmatics are also resistant to corticosteroids, which controls mild-moderate asthma pretty well, so severe asthmatics really lack a good treatment. Finally, these patients have further increased airway hyperresponsiveness and worse exacerbations, which makes this form of asthma particularly fatal. Another hallmark of severe asthma is neutrophilia. So instead of having a, a lot of eosinophils in the airway, severe asthmatics often have a lot of neutrophils. Neutrophils normally play a role in infection control. The number of ways neutrophils can kill pathogens is pretty awesome. They can gobble up pathogens whole by phagocytosis. They can release extracellular traps like Spider-Man shooting his web. Like eosinophils, they can also release a bunch of nasty chemicals like reactive oxygen species. Unfortunately, these nasty chemicals also cause tissue damage. Because of this tissue damage, we usually think of them as pathogenic in asthma. In order to better understand the different subtypes of asthma, it is important to understand the cells that are really driving the phenotypes. Different types of cells will drive the phenotypes depending on whether we have seen this allergen before or we have not. I'll start with the case where the allergen has been seen before. This is an adaptive immune response. T cells are known for their ability to orchestrate adaptive immune responses. There are two major types. CD8 positive T cells, which directly kill cells, and CD4 positive T cells, which release pro-inflammatory cytokines. Of the helper T cells, there are three main subtypes. The one that we will focus on first is the Th2 cell. But before we do that, let's try something. Everyone, close your eyes, if you're not driving a car that is, and imagine that you are an allergen floating around in the air. You are essentially a bundle of proteins, relatively harmless. You randomly float toward a human. We'll call him Brian. Brian takes a breath, and the next thing you know, 
you go through his nose, down his trachea, and into his lungs. Once you are in Brian's lungs, you'll encounter patrolling macrophages outside of a wall of epithelial cells designed to keep harmful pathogens out. Brian has unfortunately evolved a deleterious response to your otherwise innocuous self. His body thinks you are a parasitic worm trying to infect him. Now you're outside of the epithelium and there's a few things that will happen. A dendritic cell, which has long appendages, can reach through the epithelium, grab you, pull you in, and take you to the draining lymph node where it will present you like a gift to a T cell. That T cell will then turn into a Th2 cell. The next time you go into that lung as an allergen, that Th2 cell will be ready to rock and roll. And when it sees you a second time, the Th2 cell will release pro-inflammatory cytokines. An important one is IL-5, which induces eosinophilia. It will also release IL-13, which will cause many of those remodeling changes we discussed earlier. Finally, the Th2 cell will make IL-4, which will cause the B cell to isotype switch and create IgE antibodies which cause mast cell degranulation and release of histamine. And that is when you have the classic itchy allergic response. Okay, so that's the adaptive response. But Kellen, you said there's an innate immunity too? Yes, that is the next point. So back to our visualization. You are the allergen going in the mouth, down the trachea, into the lungs. Now there's more of you than just that antigen. Inside of you as an allergen, there are also proteases, which are enzymes that break apart proteins. And what these proteases can do is they can directly damage the epithelium, cause the epithelium to release pro-inflammatory cytokines called alarmins, like IL-33, for example, ringing the alarm that there is something wrong. And that IL-33 activates the ILC2, which goes on to secrete more or less the same cytokines as a Th2 cell. The cool thing about the innate immune system is that it does not matter if the host has seen that allergen before. The first time the host sees that allergen, the ILC2 will drive an allergic response. These ILC2s are really cool. They're extremely rare, There are about 20,000 of them per mouse in the lungs. That's a fraction of a percent of all cells. Not only do they drive innate immune responses, but they also connect the innate and adaptive responses in multiple ways. For example, they present antigen like other professional antigen-presenting cells. Speaking of antigen-presenting cells, let's talk a little bit more about dendritic cells. There are two major types of dendritic cells, monocyte-derived dendritic cells and conventional dendritic cells. And there are subsets of those subsets as well, but for the most part, they both can present antigen and transport it to the lymph node. Okay, so now we've discussed the major players in asthma. How is this different in severe asthma? The etiology of severe asthma, unlike mild-moderate asthma, is not well understood. Elevated levels of IL-17 and neutrophils suggest that viral and bacterial infections could cause asthma to shift from a mild eosinophil-dominant endotype to a more severe neutrophil-dominant endotype. 
Also, because severe asthma is more common in adults, I've always wondered if aging itself is driving this change in endotype. Regardless, there is a lot more work that needs to be done to understand this disease. Okay, now that we have some background, let's get into the paper. The author's main objective going into this study was to understand the role that neutrophils play in allergic airway inflammation and asthma pathogenesis. Like the previous papers we've studied, the way that they are going to figure out the role of neutrophils in this disease process is to get rid of them and see what happens. But first, they had to show that the model they were using had neutrophils to get rid of. So they have a model where they challenge mice intranasally with house dust mite or HDM, which is a very common allergen. They do this for about three weeks and they euthanize and harvest tissue at three different time points. So we have 24 hours, one week, and three weeks. The innate immune response occurs primarily during the zero to 14 day time. And after 14 days, it's gonna be more of an adaptive response. So they show with this time course what's happening innately and what's happening in an adaptive response. At each time point, the authors took the mice and performed a physiological lung assay, which is pulmonary function testing or airway hyperresponsiveness testing, AHR. This is a terminal surgical procedure to quantify the amount of resistance in the airway. After that, the mice are euthanized and the inflammation in the airway is quantified by flow cytometry and histology, specifically H&E staining. The authors first look at the three-week adaptive time point, and they show that all of the expected type 2 inflammation signatures are increased with HDM. HDM-treated mice have type 2 cytokine-positive Th2 cells, IgE, and eosinophils, all significantly increased as compared to the vehicle-treated group. Essentially, all signs point to a classic allergic response at this three-week time point. However, there are also some neutrophils, both in the lung and the BAL. The BAL is the bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. This is a saline rinse of the lungs, and it is a way to recover most of the granulocytes in the airway, as well as cytokines. So since they have some neutrophils here, they decided to deplete them. And they did that with a depletion antibody. This is an antibody that can be given in vivo and it will lead to the destruction of the cell type that it binds to. And so this one depletes neutrophils. I remember the first time I did one of these experiments and just going to the flow cytometer and seeing that that cell is no longer there is so cool. So they deplete the neutrophils the first and most important thing to do when you're doing this sort of experiment is to make sure that the cell you think you are depleting is actually depleted so that they confirm that the neutrophils are pretty much gone. And then they looked at the same endpoints as before. The Th2 response as a whole is increased. This is the, the big shocker. Personally, I would have thought that depleting neutrophils would have made things better for these mice. Regardless, the effect was significant. However, it was not that large. 
So the authors wondered if looking at a different time point, such as the one week time point instead, would work better because the neutrophils peaked during this time point. At this early time point, the authors looked at more or less the same things, IL-5 and IL-13, but this time they looked at ILC2s as the source of these cytokines because this is an innate model. What they find is that after neutrophil depletion, the frequency of ILC2s that are making IL-5 and IL-13 is the same, but each individual cell is making more IL-5 and IL-13. Together, this contributed to an overall greater allergic response. They also looked at the levels of antigen-presenting cells and found that dendritic cells were enriched when neutrophils were depleted. Perhaps there's more antigen presentation going on at this early time point that leads to the enhanced Th2 response at the later time point. They did a pretty cool experiment to corroborate this. They took ovalbumin, or ova, which is a chicken egg protein, conjugated it to a fluorochrome, and then gave it to mice with the allergen during this one-week protocol, and were able to trace this antigen and follow it on its journey to the mediastinal lymph node. The mediastinal lymph node, or MLN, is the lymph node that is in the thoracic cavity closest to the lungs, and this is where antigen presentation is occurring. They quantified the dendritic cells in the lymph nodes that are positive for this ova, and they found significantly more when mice were neutrophil depleted. So they put the interesting ILC2 phenotype on the back burner for now and investigated the mechanism behind this enhanced antigen presentation. So they looked for changes in mediators that could regulate these monocytes and dendritic cells. And they found three involved in the same pathway to be significantly upregulated in the neutrophil-depleted mice when challenged with HDM. IL-23, IL-17, and GCSF. The authors then show a really nice schematic of what could be going on here. Macrophages and dendritic cells, or at least IL-23, which then activates gamma-delta T-cells, CD4-positive alpha-beta T-cells, these are the Th17 cells, as well as IL-C3s, although they don't mention them here. All three of these cell types are capable of producing IL-17, which leads to the production of GCSF, a mediator important for granulopoiesis. This allows neutrophils to migrate into the tissues. And once these neutrophils are in the tissues and they've done their job, they begin to apoptose. Macrophages and dendritic cells then phagocytose these dying neutrophils. And this inhibits the production of IL-23 by these cells. So if there are no neutrophils in the tissues, then the macrophages and dendritic cells never stop producing IL-23, which leads to the accumulation of IL-17 and GCSF. The next question they ask is whether this GCSF that accumulates when the neutrophil negative feedback loop is inhibited, is this GCSF what's causing the increased ILC2 activation and antigen presentation? To test this, they use their week-long HDM model, but also add GCSF and look at all of the normal endpoints. Not surprisingly, addition of exogenous GCSF increased the neutrophil levels. It also led to an increase in monocytes in the lung and bone marrow monocyte and dendritic cell progenitors. Additionally, it increased ILC2 cytokine levels. Was this effect due to a direct mechanism or indirect mechanism? 
the way they addressed this was by isolating ILC2s from mice by FACS, which is basically the same as a flow cytometer, but in addition to being an analyzer, it is also able to physically separate the cells. And then they put these ILC2s in a dish and culture them with a known activator, IL33. They found that, like in vivo, the addition of GCSF potentiates or further increases ILC2 activation over IL-33 alone. So it is a direct mechanism. Importantly, they do the same experiment with T-cells, and they do not see a potentiation with GCSF, which is interesting because Th2 cells generally are activated by many of the same cytokines as ILC2s. Now, up until this point, all of this work has been done in mice. The question remains is, do these findings hold true in humans? Is this work translational? They tested this by taking human blood, isolating the ILC2s, and putting them in culture, doing basically the same experiment they did in mice in vitro, but with the human cells. And they did find that GCSF does upregulate human ILC2 cytokine production. These mouse therapeutic targets that the authors have identified specifically neutrophils and GCSF, could very well be therapeutic targets for humans with allergic disease. And that's the paper. So to summarize this report, the authors made a paradigm-shifting finding. These neutrophils inhibit allergic airway disease pathogenesis. This completely changes the way people will think about neutrophils in allergic disease. Not only do the authors elucidate a novel role for neutrophils in regulating allergic airway inflammation, but they also, in searching for the mechanism, find that GCSF, which is kept down through negative feedback loops with the neutrophils and antigen-presenting cells, is able to potentiate ILC2 activation, as well as induce the expansion and egress of antigen-presenting cell progenitors from the bone marrow into the tissue. The novelty and significance of this manuscript is sky high. The authors mention an interesting case study in their discussion that supports their findings. This case study is of a patient with cyclic neutropenia. So this person had cyclical decreases in their neutrophil levels, specifically in 21-day cycles. This person also had acute asthma. What this case study reported was that times when the patient had low levels of neutrophils, they also had higher levels of eosinophils, IgE levels, and more asthma exacerbations. And this would occur over and over again. This is super interesting, and it really corroborates their findings here. The authors again mention in the discussion how attempts to eliminate neutrophils in human asthmatics have not worked one potential reason that it hasn't worked is that the increased level of GCSF that could also occur in humans was not accounted for. And thus, future therapies that aim to not only eliminate neutrophils, but also block GCSF from activating ILC2s and enhancing antigen presentation could prove to be more fruitful. I also wonder if administering dying neutrophils to the lungs could also be a potential therapeutic. This may lower the levels of IL-23 and the subsequent allergic airway inflammation without causing tissue damage. Overall, this work may ultimately lead to a treatment for severe asthma and save lives. 
One thing that I really liked about this paper was how the authors went into the study with one objective to elucidate the role of neutrophils in allergic airway inflammation and not only discovered a new role for them, but also discovered a new mediator of ILC2 activation and a regulator of antigen presentation, both of which had not been described previously. So it sounds like they followed the data, which is something that my previous mentor taught me and something that I think is really important to do in science. Be aware of interesting things that pop up and run with them and see where they go. One thing I would like to see in a follow-up study would be how well does the combined neutrophil depletion and GCSF blockade work in an actual severe asthma model? Is it able to attenuate the airway hyperresponsiveness, reverse the steroid resistance, and also reduce the inflammation? I think this is an important next step before we start thinking about treating humans. This also makes me think, could we leverage this mechanism in other airway diseases like COPD, for example? Further, could it be leveraged in diseases outside of the lung in which neutrophils are involved? Overall, great paper. Kudos to the authors. I'm really looking forward to seeing what this leads to. All right, well, that is another episode. Before we wrap up, it's time to share another thing that I've learned over the years that has helped me in science. The thing I would like to mention today is reviewing papers. I was extremely lucky during my training to have a boss that would let me review papers for him. This is an exercise that I urge everyone in science to take advantage of. And there are many reasons why. It's a way to contribute to the betterment of the scientific community as a whole, to be a gatekeeper of sorts, to make sure that only good, reproducible science is allowed to reach the public. Limiting bad science from reaching the public is an important way to increase the trust between the scientific community and the public. It's also great for the resume. It's going to please the editors and give you a good reputation. But most importantly, reviewing papers teaches you skills. It allows you to practice reading critically and providing feedback with a positive tone. Finally, your boss will probably love you because you'll take work off their plate. While your science is priority number one, make the time to review papers if you can. Voila, that's another episode. Cheers, everyone. I'll see you next time.